Welcome. This is One Hour of Sunshine, and I'm your host, Megan Joy Haverda. We are filming today out of the Sandbox in Santa Barbara, California, a co-working hub for entrepreneurs and changemakers. This show is for business leaders that are willing to finally admit that they use their intuition to make business decisions and to navigate their lives. This show will elevate and normalize intuitive skills in the workplace and allow such skills to be seen as great assets to companies, organizations, communities, and families. Our guest today is Phil Strong, founder of Zimbit. We will be speaking with him in a moment, so stay tuned for his exciting story. Every show, I share an intuition of the day. And the one that came to me um, actually came uh, about a week ago, and I've been thinking about it and, and kind of playing it out on myself. And the question is, how long does it take you to process joy versus trauma, and why? Is it gender related? Is it upbringing related? For example, I have an enormous capacity to feel, generate, and share joy. However, when I am deeply hurt, it takes me months, if not years, to really work through it and clear it thoroughly and forgive. I know a few men on the flip side that can process battle and pain very quickly and decisively. <laughs> However, if a woman they like likes them back, I have actually seen them resist the joy and the love. There's no right or wrong here, obviously, but think about it. Because how you do one thing is often how you do everything. So this can translate into a business setting very easily. Think about an executive who is always ready and expecting the next battle instead of celebrating the win on the table right in front of them. So ask yourself, do I accept joy when it's right in front of me? Do I expect ease and joy? Or do I assume that I must arm myself for the next fight? All right, let's meet our guest today. Welcome, Phil. Thank you. Great to be here. <laughs> we first met in 2009 at Bee Green Packaging. You were the hired gun who came in to consult for us and analyze our 80-20 sales situation. Um, it's great to still have you in my life and certainly have you on this show. Thank you. Great to be here. <laughs> Hard to believe it's 10 years. <laughs> so let's give the audience a little context about Phil. Phil was born in England a very, very long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, and he came to the States to pursue his business goals. He's married to an, a fantastic woman named Indra, and they have three boys who are all making their own way in the world now as innovators. Today, Phil is the founder and CEO at Zimbit, a security technology business based in Santa Barbara, California, and he's the director at Evolve Controls, a private equity-backed energy efficiency business. Phil holds a master's degree in international business and entrepreneurship from ENPC in Paris, together with a master's degree in robotics from Imperial College of London, and a bachelor's degree in physics from the University of Manchester. Phil, tell us more. Well, great to be here <laughs> in this hot day. In this it hot is little very room. warm. <laughs> <laughs> so, out of all those um, educational things, hearing you speak about it, maybe the one that I resonate with most is the physics, mm. because physics is all about understanding the fundamentals, just going back to basics. Yeah. <clears throat> 
And I think for for me and throughout my life, that's always been an important sort of compass. I keep asking why, you know, why, why do we do it this way? Why do those people do it that way? Why do we react? And physics is, is kind of a, a grounding for that. There's yeah. no stupid questions. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so despite maybe looking like an engineer, actually there's kind of an artist there behind it yeah. that asks the fundamental questions. So when, I, when I'm out in the street and I meet other physicists, it's always like, this is going to be an interesting conversation uh -huh. because they're thinking about life. And observing. And observing, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So intuition has been part of your life for a very long time. Do you want to share, you were recently in Madrid, and you got a very important insight when you were there. Yeah, so as you said earlier, I like to observe things. Mm -hmm. And one of my best friends in the world, apart from my wife and family and friends, is, is this. You know? <laughs> Maybe not this exact camera, but cameras have been my friend for a long time. Yeah. And I guess as I've got older, I've begun to realize that that's how I observe the world. And you can catch, capture an instant, but then go back a week later, a month later, 10 years later, and say, wow, okay, that's what was going on at that time. Yeah. So one of the things that um, struck me, and I was just browsing through some pictures here last year, and these are pictures from Madrid. So you'll see them up on the screen. Yeah. And what struck me was th the three or four pictures here, you'll see a pattern. In this first one, this is a really busy market in Madrid. Madrid yeah. is, you know, it's full of life, especially at night at eight, eight nine o'clock. People yeah. are just waking up and getting <laughs> ready to go. So this was a market, 10 o'clock at night. Two kids sat there on their cell phones. Yeah. And then there's a guy in the background, maybe their dad, also on a cell phone. Yeah. And they're totally oblivious to what's going on around them. Yeah. So I obviously, I saw that at the time and took it. But then... You look at the second photograph, here's another one, a couple out for a date, yeah? Yeah. They've obviously been together a long time because they're looking at their cell phones. <laughs> <laughs> they're not communicating with each other, nor are they absorbing what's, or observing what's going on around them. Yeah. And so I dug a bit deeper and just found some other ones. Yeah. Here's a lady who's off her shift, yeah. having a break in the window, and she doesn't Totally, totally oblivious, in engrossed in the phone. Yeah, yeah. So she's feeding her ego really with just getting data and information all the time and not yeah. really interacting with people. As many of us do. Which I, I found really telling and sad and I thought maybe you know, that's a good, a good sort of subject to start this discussion on. But then out of all of that, I remember this picture really well. <laughs> and the, and he, his three people sat at a fountain and I think, I think the people on the left are a couple and they just bumped into this old guy and then started to chat. And I watched this unfold yeah. and I just thought it was beautiful. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. they were interacting, no phones, no nothing. They trusted their gut. This guy's safe. Yeah. She's interesting. Yeah. And you can just look at the joy on their face. That and we've got time for this conversation. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. To so for me, that was a beautiful reminder that uh, we really have to learn to communicate again I yeah. think particularly yeah. you know, the generation that's coming up right now has forgot that skill and that does play into intuition and yeah <coughs> all the things we're going to talk about well and the power of nonverbal communication you know we'll share with the audience these photos um, uh, 
but there's smiling, there's eye contact happening. And when we're too electronically based, even though you're an engineer and you're basically in an electronics business, you remember and have taught your children the power of eye contact and right. quality time and nonverbal communication where you do things together. And you know, I have a three and a half year old son. He's all about interacting. And sometimes we don't talk for an hour, but we're t constantly touching and playing and looking and making sounds. And you know, it's it's very tender. It's mm -hmm. very intimate. Well. So when do you think in your life was the first aha moment of deciphering ego versus intuition? Um, and before you answer that, on the last show, we, we took it even deeper to say, and then there's essence, right? So essence is when you're completely connected. There's no discernment at all. Um, so ego is more the controlling, egotistical mind, thinking mind, controlling mind. Intuition is more the heart-centered living, tuning into oneself, what feels right, connecting to your higher self. And then essence is really, I'm totally connected all the time, mm -hmm. and I live this way. So how, where were you in your life as a man, as a boy, when you started to discern the difference between ego and intuition? Well, I'm the thing may, may be a starting point yeah. because I think it's a journey. Yeah? It's definitely <laughs> it's, a journey. It's a journey and we're still working <laughs> <onion>. on it. <laughs> and I would say, you know, at 23, I had been through college. I'd done my degree. I was in a good job yeah. <coughs> and um, doing all the things that you should do. I was having fun. It was yeah. an interesting job. We were doing something in helicopter simulators, something really geeky. Yeah. And, but there came a point two and a half, two years into that, where I just felt, hmm, there's something missing here. I need to do something else. I need to get out. I need to explore the world. And But I couldn't articulate it. I just knew something wasn't mm -hmm. fulfilling me at the time. Mm -hmm. So I guess at that point, you know, I had the courage or the stupidity, one or the other, both to <laughs> start to pick at it and say, well, actually, maybe I need to go back to school maybe I want to leave the town I live in maybe <clears throat> so long story short after a couple of months talking with my supervisors who all said no 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 you should stay here it's, you know, it's a really good career you've got I said no nah, I'm, I'm going <laughs> I'm out of here so I went off and did uh, a master's degree in London in robotics and then I met a business guy and started my first business with him and you know life has been a great journey from then so I think that was the point in time where I sort of broke the mold and yeah. said, I'm not doing what's expected of me. I'm doing what I actually want yeah. and feel, even though I can't fully articulate it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Very much. Mm. Well, and, and listening to one's intuition, you know, it's, it's not self-centered to listen to your intuition. It mm. is actually um, self-nourishing to have an internal review mechanism to say what's really right for me right now. I'm not negating what's happening on the outside or what my family's saying or my mentors are saying or whatever, others' opinions, but I know what's best for myself. And that's one thing that I've really learned as I peel my own intuition onion and learn more and more about the depths of listening to myself. So we've talked, we've worked together over the years, and you said something 
interesting about the institutionalization of intuition and it made me think about Stanford University and how they were touted for teaching emotional intelligence and um, that's very much the into institutionalization of intuition you know how do I gain control in this business transaction by being a little uh, more aware of emotions than the other guy Intuition doesn't really want the leg up. Intuition wants everybody to uh, be seen and heard and happy and expressive. So what have you noticed in the business world when a company starts squeezing the creativity and intuition out of its employees? What, what have you seen happen? Maybe, <clears throat> so maybe the first part of the question there would be, I don't think you can teach that yeah I think you have to learn it everybody has to go out and and choose to learn to be an entrepreneur yeah. or learn to be intuitive or learn to understand people and they make mistakes along the way we do we, we all make mistakes yeah. that's how we learn yeah. and intuition I think is having the courage to do that and say I don't know but I'm yeah. gonna go find out <laughs> yeah and I think <laughs> it's great what they're doing at Stanford and other universities yeah. where they're teaching that but most of the good places uh, will also say, they'll just throw you in at the deep end and say, here's your assignment, go do it, go yeah. find out for yourself. It's not something you'll learn in a book, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So br bringing that to the context of a business, you know, I had a, part of my career, I had a great five years at a company called Danaher, which is a, I don't know what they are today, $20 billion, but for the size of the company, they were amazingly entrepreneurial. And what they did was they took young executives, and they hated the word executives, rightly. They would just put smart people into difficult situations and say, go run that business, go talk to those customers, go figure it out. And that culture of letting people uh, figure, figure things out for themselves was what made that a great company despite the size of it and they didn't destroy it with process that was very good mm -hmm. that's very it's unique actually um, so what what about Danaher and some of your other experiences in the corporate setting made you want to be an entrepreneur because that those are two very different lifestyles <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was probably a bit of a duck out of water at that place because I was the entrepreneur, yeah. much more the entrepreneur than the process-driven business guy. Yeah, and you need both. Um, but I think I think when a company is striving to grow and they're looking to get into new markets, and um, that takes the entrepreneur mindset, and it's all about growth and. Um, you don't have all the answers, yeah. but you have a plan to get the answers. You'll go and test something. You'll go and try something out and say, I have an idea. Let me spend 10 grand or whatever the number is to go and test that idea. Yeah. And in a, <coughs> in a corporation, I think you get the whole spectrum of people who are entrepreneurial and intuitive and people who are completely process driven and yeah. We'll never invent anything or come up with anything new. You yeah. need all of those yeah. in a company to work. Otherwise, it would be total chaos <laughs> <laughs> or totally stagnant. Yeah. So I think good companies work by sort of figuring out the right mixture of yes. or who's going to lead, lead the charge, who's going to be on the flank making sure that we don't get stuck in a mess, and then who, what's the process where if you do find gold, you can scale it up quickly. Yeah. 
That is very true. Well, and, and to your point, you know, in, in more of the corporate setting, larger setting, there's major risk aversion. And, um, and I've been really interested in risk management because of my background in environment and social issues. And so now here we are at a time on planet Earth where there are a lot of risks mm -hmm. <laughs> and, they're, and they're mounting. And so corporations, communities, organizations are really threatened not only because of natural resource management and, and water issues and food security, but also a lot of weather issues are, are coming about. You and I both experienced the fire and debris flows here this past winter, so it's very personal for us. Um, but risk management and the tolerance for risk, it used to be, oh, go work in the corporation, you'll have your 401k, mm -hmm. it'll all be fine, 25, 30 years later, you'll retire and you'll be on your way. And that doesn't, it's not necessarily panning out that way anymore. So I'm very interested for you to share about Zimbit because the actual product that you guys are making could make many new products and give a lot of entrepreneurs something to grasp onto and solve a lot of risk management issues that are happening around the world and around the country right now. So um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about Zimbit and what it does, and then we'll get back to some more intuition questions. Can we segment that to the back? Yes. I, I wanted to put a bit in there about risk in this book. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> okay. We can move it around. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bit about risk. Yeah. yeah. So you asked about how <clears throat> in, in big companies, I think everybody knows there's a risk out there at an individual level. Yeah. yeah everybody senses some risk. But collectively, uh, the organization doesn't take that on board. And the reason they don't take it on board necessarily is because people don't communicate the risk. They don't, they're scared to say, hey, this isn't working out as I think, or uh, there's something on the horizon that really could be a risk to us. And in the context of my business, you know, security of data is a big thing. People don't like to talk about it until something big happens. Yeah. And then everyone knew about it. Yeah. So why didn't you tell me about it? Yeah. So I think, I think the, the interesting dynamic in real people and real organizations is that most people know the risk is there. But they don't want to. They don't know how to measure it, uh, quantify it, and they don't want to talk about it because it's a bad thing. Therefore, companies get blindsided, and you know that's the subject of some of the books. Some of my favorite books, The yeah. Black Swan, is all about people like just putting bets all the time, and then one day, you know, the fat turkey who got fed every day got his head chopped off. That's what happened in the market crash. Yeah. yeah? yeah. So those. Those rare events are actually not as rare as we think. It's yeah. just that the way we look at risk in an organization is uh, we're kind of blind to it or we don't talk about it. So it's yeah. back to this idea of intuitively we probably know things are risky. And as individuals, as entrepreneurs, we can, um, we can decide whether we take that risk or not. Yeah. But in a large company, it's not your problem. It's not your risk. Yeah. You'll still get paid. You'll still get your 401k. Right. So the risk is under the carpet. Right. There's less, perhaps less self-responsibility happening inside a structure of a corporation where there's perceived safety, but it's, it's just a perception. 
<laughs> so my, I, I don't know if I invented this word, but I use it a lot. Yeah. It's called collective disresponsibility. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's like, yeah, it's not me. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting time on the planet. And, um, you know, how we, how we take self-responsibility and cultivate our intuition. I, I just have to ask you, how has your wife <laughs> impacted your own journey of understanding your intuitive self? Well, she's very patient, yeah. Um, she's a smart lady. She's she grown up in, a, in the Soviet Union with an artistic background as a dancer, and she's always an intuitive. So yeah. she, she has taught me a lot over the years. And I think maybe if I was to put that in a nutshell, it's she's just taught me to trust myself yeah and trust my own intuition and she'll often say when i'm having a, a crappy day yeah. she'd say what makes you happy <laughs> <laughs> and you know taking photographs is one of them yeah so i'm just like okay i'll go go do that yeah. and so <laughs> she taught me to just ground it and just trust my own instincts beautiful to have that constant reflection from her mm-hmm and so then the two of you raised these three boys, and uh, I'm reading The Wonder of Boys, which is a great book about raising young men in the United States and the history of raising men versus what is needed today and what um, specialists are looking at in, as far as community and really having lots of influences on our young men and really allowing them to feel and not suppress their feelings. So you have three boys. How did you nourish this part of them are some more intuitive than others are they all very awake and intuitive what what have you witnessed in three boys three teenage three boys. young men <laughs> yeah <laughs> well there's two things we value in our house one yeah. is experience and interaction and the other is education yeah so they're not material things they're all about giving yeah. our kids experiences so yeah. as kids they traveled a lot and um fortunately they have family and parents on the other side of the world and yeah. that helped but maybe a couple of examples might illustrate yeah so Aiden you know Aiden's 15 two two years ago he's 15 he's 17 today and uh we were in Madrid where these photographs came from and we were wandering around at 2 a.m in the middle of the night yeah you know, down these dark alleys <laughs> and and Aiden's saying how do you know it's safe and I thought this is a perfect learning yeah. moment. So we just stopped and I said, listen, look where people are coming from. Yeah. Are they going towards you, coming away? What do you smell and what do you feel and yeah. what do you hear? And that was uh, an, an intuitive yeah. learning experience for him. But also for me, actually, because yeah. I had to think. You're why. like, oh, God, maybe we aren't. What? <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing out here? <laughs> well, you can feel it on a, on a dark, empty street. You can feel if you are safe or not. It is very true. Right. And another example? So my middle guy's a gearhead. You yeah. know, he's an artist. He's at theater school, but he's yeah. also a gearhead. He like took his father. Yeah, so <laughs> he's, he has this 20-year-old love affair with a, what's well, a 20-year-old Land Rover, yeah, which yeah. is just a beast. <laughs> yeah. And he calls it the beast. And he took me to Pismo Beach maybe about six months ago. I have never driven on Pismo Beach, let alone in the dunes of the back and... He took me and his two brothers up into the back of Pismo Beach. I don't know if you've ever been there. The dunes. I've seen it. Yes. It's crazy yeah. wild. Yeah. And uh, we were just flying off sand oh dunes. <laughs> like, well, I'm, you know, trusting this guy, and 
the act of trusting him I mean he knew what he was doing and he learned something and I learned something too which yeah. is you just gotta let these boys go experiment and do their own thing yeah and um, that's how they grow and become men yeah testing the limits and sand driving is very different than tarmac driving so he's probably been practicing yes yes yeah yeah all the time he's calculated mm-hmm. <laughs> and we have an open house we have a lot of people in our house yeah right, around the dinner table you know yeah. our, we've always got someone there every other week or visiting i have no idea who they are they just come <laughs> in and we chat <laughs> stop <laughs> no you have a lot of friends and colleagues and they come and stay with you in beautiful santa barbara <laughs> so um one thing that you and I have have been knee deep in, at least maybe sometimes neck high in, is when we're building a new thing um, together or separately, you know, we've collaborated many times over the years, different companies, different industries, and you are this expert in customer validation. I mean, you have such a process around it. You have such an interest in it. You know, you're just rigorous about it. So over the years of cultivating that expertise in yourself, how has intuition played a role when you're really looking at a customer base and you're looking at the marketplace and you're figuring out what's going to work and what's going to fail? How do you do that? I think it comes back to that curiosity of the physicist and asking the dumb questions. Yeah, um, over and over again. We've <laughs> both seen so many people come in with a great idea and a business plan and they just want it polished up. And yeah. They're gonna raise 10 million bucks. Right. And uh, they're ready to go. And then you say, but who's the customer? And they have some vague ideas. Well, give me some names. Give me some people I can talk to. How much are they gonna pay? Why are they going to buy your stuff? Are they going to buy your stuff? All of those very basic what questions. What pain point are you solving? Yeah. <laughs> All of those basic questions that most people are scared to ask their clients right. or even their friends of or right. their own business. Right. It's like, yeah, let's start picking at that. And when yeah. when the client is uncomfortable, you know there's something there. They don't know the answer. Yeah. <laughs> they don't really know. So yeah. I think... Um, the intuitive part of it is maybe it's not intuition. There's a there's a process around going and really understanding the customer and being in the customer's shoes. And it's back to this idea of um, sort of getting close and communicating with people and not letting process or your ego get in the way. Yeah. You know, as a person, as a salesperson, good salespeople, they don't sell stuff. Right, they, they connect. Listen, they connect and yeah. they listen and they understand the problem. Well, I've seen you in action and I will beg to differ and I will say I have seen you use your intuition in uh, customer validation process by knowing when we're not done yet. When, when to keep picking, mm-hmm. you know, maybe because people love to make a decision. Boom, done, next, boom, done, next. And it takes an intuitive to say, mm, we're not done yet. No, that's not right yet. Let's keep going. And you do that over and over again. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess I never thought of it as intuition, but it is about getting to the simple truth. As I always think there's kind of a root of yeah. something that's that simple. 
and we're often scared to tell those simple things because yeah. we want to look sophisticated. Right. So. <laughs> or we don't want to disappoint somebody, you know, yeah. and, and we've worked with clients <coughs> before, so we've built our own businesses, but we've also worked with clients. And, you know, sometimes it's not popular to say the truth in the moment to a client. And, you know, what have you done when you felt very strongly about intuition that you were getting about a client relationship and you had to share it and it wasn't taken well how have you navigated that because sometimes it's hard to lay it out there and I've seen you do it time and time again usually it's about just keep asking the questions yeah. until the customer gets it or the other person gets yeah. it and it's like ah I get what you're getting at and yeah. the light bulb goes off if after several of those steps the light bulb doesn't go off, either the person doesn't want to know the truth, yeah, or they're not going to get there. But I, I'm, I have a lot of faith in people, and most people, if they're honest with themselves yeah. and trust themselves, they will get to the right answer. Yeah. So if they don't, or if they, if they just completely ignore it, I think the only remedy then is to say, "That's great. Good luck." You know. Yes. Go. Go find out for yourself and <laughs> stay in touch. Stay in touch <laughs> because you can't teach that. You have to let them experience it for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I very, very much agree. And we've been in many situations like that together. Yes. You know? Yes. We have. And it's been an absolute honor and joy to be by your side in all the situations um, because you're so clear and you're, you're so honest and you really care about everyone involved. And, you know, I was thinking about something as you were speaking a minute ago. The relationship to time, going back to the photos that you shared in Madrid, the relationship to time that all of our electronics and cell phones and busyness and, da -da -da -da, and the freneticness of life now has done something to our relationship to time. Mm -hmm. And to be intuitive or to let the natural process unflow, uh, unfold it takes time and it takes trust to be patient and let time unfold. But in some situations when a corporation needs an answer or a sales team needs to meet their goals, we can just run right over time and rush the process and rush each other. And I don't have a solution for this. I'm just bringing it up because um, I see one of the things that keeps people separate from knowing themselves or listening to themselves is external expectation to perform. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it, it will be interesting in the years ahead if we, re if we have a renaissance of time, if we have a renaissance as a nation in America to slow back down again. You know, the whole farm-to-table experience, I was hoping that would slow everybody down to go pick some berries and <laughs> grow some food. Um, but there are a lot of forces that are continuing to speed up time around us and, and ourselves included. So um, I'm very grateful that you brought that up in those photos earlier in the show. So what are your current priorities right now? And do you want to share a bit about Zimbit and what it does and what it is and how people can connect to you guys and utilize this magic box <laughs> sure so our customers are software engineers yeah they're developing lots of very cool and, and very you know valuable things there's a lot of crazy things out there but there's yeah. some real practical stuff some people may have heard of the internet of things mm -hmm. and there's 
there's going to be hundreds of millions, billions of things out there. Most of the people building them are creative types. Yeah, they're they're like 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 I am. They're they're building some value in it. Yeah. And the last thing they do is think about someone's going to destroy that. Someone's going to hack it. Someone's going to get into it. And they usually don't want to think about it. So where Zimbit comes in is we help them make those things secure. Yeah. yeah. And we make. We're really a software company ourselves, mm -hmm. but we make hardware for software engineers. Mm -hmm. We have an example of it here. Great. So this this little bit of hardware is actually software. Yeah. Okay. A lot of software in there. Some very smart um, business colleagues of mine have developed that. Um, and what we do is we, s if you put this into your design, into your smart refrigerator or your smart car, this will help protect a lot of your what we call digital assets, which I'm sure is totally clear. Yes, <laughs> ish. <laughs> so digital assets are all your data or your software code that you might have spent millions um, developing, all of your connection credentials, your passwords, all of that software needs to be protected somewhere. So what we do is we protect those critical things in this little device, which is you know, pure security at the end of the day, plug-in yeah. security. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we were we were mentioning earlier about risk management and how people have wanted to avoid anything unpleasant for a long time, <laughs> and mm -hmm. now kind of it, it's stacking up. You know, oh, food and water and weather and gee, I think we have to start thinking about risk management. <laughs> so I see Zimbit as an incredible, an incredible cog in the risk management wheel. It's good. T touches all of those things you talked about food yeah. process yeah. Um, collecting data from sensors that's used to decide if you put pesticide on something or you don't put pesticide you put water in all of that is wow. totally vulnerable wow. and it really is the next level of I don't like to think of it as a threat so mm -hmm. much because everyone gets very negative about a threat mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. <coughs> just as nature has learned to protect things yeah yeah walnuts have shells on them for a reason yeah yeah nature has put a hard coating around some of the most precious things we have, and that's essentially what we're doing, is putting a hard coat yeah. around software that really has become a fabric of our, you know, our civilization these days. Well, and I also I can see I can imagine many different applications where it actually helps people conserve resources. So instead of overwatering something or sure. over um, herbiciding something, you know, you can really monitor the environment and see exactly the amount that it needs. So I, I can see a lot of different um, applications for it. And, you know, when you first started the business, I remember, and you were so excited about being in a community of makers and people that were back to building and making things with their hands, not just sitting behind a computer and, you know, filling out a spreadsheet or whatever. Um, and so I, it's, it's easy when you're building a company to get isolated and insulated, right? But mm -hmm. do you still make an effort to reach out to other makers and build a community around you? And what is that like? Yeah, so I, I, I love that. You know, that's why we say we help, help engineers make things secure. They're making things, yeah. and then we do the security bit. Yeah. <coughs> These days, I mean, maybe two years ago, I was out there actively helping the maker community and yeah. trying to do that. I but remember. these days, we have enough customers who come to us, and they're making stuff. And it's like, how do I do this? How do I do that? Can that's you help great. us make this secure? Can you help us plug it in? 
and it's it's a fun ride yeah. you know some yeah. some of those customers are they buy it we don't hear anything then they buy three thousand yeah so it's done and some <laughs> of them are emailing us at 2 a.m last night <laughs> saying we did this it doesn't work can you help us here but they get there and yeah, yeah. there's a, a a ton of energy particularly I would say across all age groups, actually, people who have been in big companies. We have many touch points of people who have been in big companies or are still in big companies saying, you know, I'm bored. I actually yeah. want to do something that's yeah. creating something and changing, having an impact on the environment or the way awesome. we use resources. So, yeah, I think it's um, alive and vibrant. And certainly the place we're in is, is a big part of that, too. The sandbox here. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, every show we do the intuition of the day and we also do a call to action at the end of the show. And I love to have the guests do it because you um, have a lot of wisdom to share with the audience and we've discussed a lot today. But if you had to leave them with one, one bit of homework, one thing to scratch at and think about, what would you, what would you want to share? So I think... And it's still true in schools, we're sort of taught to discount our intuitions. We're taught to process things in a certain way. And if you do A, B, and C, you'll be set up for life. Unfortunately, we're still taught that. But I think if we can get back to following our heart or our intuition, whatever you want to call it, follow our heart and use your head to get there, that's, that's my thought. Yeah. Don't be afraid to do so. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Phil. Thank you. We haven't <laughs> quite melted yet. <laughs> we haven't quite melted yet. Um, I just want to say thank you again to The Sandbox for having us here and to Onericom for their production and creative support, marketing, and distribution expertise. And to our sponsor today, who is Daryl Park, one of my dearest and oldest friends from back in Washington, D.C. days. Um, he's a public figure and a very proud father and husband um, living in Southern California. So thank you, Daryl, for letting this show happen today with your support and care. Bye for now. This is Megan Joy Haverda, your host of One Hour of Sunshine. See you in two weeks for our next show with Yoga Soup's founder, Eddie Elner. <laughs>